How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 230 of X-Lapse, where huh, it's a very newsworthy day, isn't it? Well, yesterday, I guess, was a newsworthy day. Uh, and uh, if I were a better and more clickbaity content creator, I probably would have like stopped the presses and claimed to have had exclusive information on Jonathan Hickman leaving the X-Men. But since I don't have any of that, and neither do the people who actually sent out those messages. I figure I would just cover it in the next episode I recorded, which just so happens to be this one. And it's also, I mean, this is a big day. Jonathan Hickman's leaving. We're launching Volume 6 of X-Men. I'm going in for more dental work. It's a huge day here at the Palatial Cristate. I mean, it's, it's such a big day I can hardly contain myself. But uh, we will get to all of that as we work our way through this episode. Of course, we do have a book to discuss. We will cover Hickman leaving and what that might mean to the line. We'll talk about perhaps other creators leaving. Uh, there's a Substack thing, which I know very little about, but we'll talk a little bit about what little I do know about it uh, toward the end of the episode. But the main event of today is the launch of Volume 6 of X-Men. So let's get into that. We'll work our way through this uh, very fun issue, and then we'll talk about the pertinent news of the day. Now, this is, of course, X-Men Volume 6, number 1, September 2021 cover date. The story is called Fearless, Chapter 1, in Threes. Written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Pepe Larraz, colors Mardi Gracia, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, head of X, for now, Hickman, edits Bisa white Sabolski, cover price $5, and this one went on sale July 7th of 2021. Now, our story and volume opens with a, a boy named Kelvin Hang. He's a genius from birth who was responsible for some pretty crazy IPs and scientific advances during his youth. Now, his parents didn't seem to care much for him and basically ripped him off for his entire childhood. Though, I mean, this isn't to say his folks were losers, they were no slouches at all. His mother was a Nobel Prize winner, and his father was the top nuclear physicist in China. Oh, and also our man is a descendant of Nikola Tesla, who, if I'm remembering right, was part of a Hickman Shield series several years back. I don't know if that'll come back around or not. Now, he would grow up, and he would take on a new name, Fei Long. So maybe he was really good at Street Fighter II as well. Hmm. Well, no, Fei Long is actually a dragon from Chinese mythology. Now, Fei Long Industries would be the name of his company. Now, under this banner, he'd make huge advances in innovations in biology and climate sciences. He was able to turn basically wasteland into like a lush green, like a hospitable environment. And he would turn his eyes skyward to Mars. You see where we're going here? Now, he even went so far as to alter his own biology so he could survive on Mars, believing it would be easier and more expedient than actually terraforming the entire planet. Which, you know, post-Hellfire Gala, we kind of been there, done that, right? So, poor guy, right? Now, he is quite ticked off, and he wants revenge on the mutants for making his life's work a redundancy. Double-page spread of roll call and cred are X-Men R, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Sunfire, Sink, who I used to call Cinch when I was a kid. I don't know if I've mentioned that before, but I always would call him Cinch. Uh, Wolverine, who is, of course, Laura, X-23, uh, Polaris, and Rogue. We pick back up at The Treehouse. In New York City. Now, this is the X-Men's new headquarters, which, as the name might suggest, is, in fact, a giant tree. It's growing out of a plot of land right, uh, right there in the middle of the city, which Krakoa has named Seneca Gardens in reverence to the settlement Seneca Village, established by free black Americans back in 1825. 
Now, Seneca Village would be taken back by the city via eminent domain in 1857, when it would be uh, torn down for the construction of Central Park. I tell you what, right out of the gate here, it's nice to have a book that isn't 100% based out of Krakoa. I mean, this alone feels more X-Men to me than most things we've seen. Though, yeah, I wonder what this might mean for the Krakoan Embassy, which is also in New York City, and we saw that in uh, recent issues of Children of the Atom. Maybe a little bit redundant to have both, but by no means a deal-breaker of any sort. Anyway, Cyclops is here, and he's met by Daily Bugle writer and apparently co-owner Ben Urich. Now, Ben Urich, for anyone who doesn't know who he is, he's usually viewed as, like, the bastion of, like, honest reporting, quality reporting in the Marvel Universe here. Now, after a handshake, Cyclops tells Ben that he's a big fan of his work. Ben attempts to bait him by suggesting that, you know what, yeah, I'm a good writer for a human. Well, Scott doesn't take the bait. He was like, hey, you're a good writer for anybody. And uh, it seems as though he might realize that it's in his best interest not to be quite so rah-rah mutant while living in the human world. Or, you know, perhaps he was never really quite as Krakoa patriotic as many of the movers and shakers have been depicted as being. You never know. Anyway. Ben claims to like the treehouse and also the name Seneca Gardens. Then he gets down to business. He says, uh, hey, I like your costume, and asks if it's a carnation abomination. Cyclops says, yeah, I think so. Which brings us to Ben's next question, which is, hey, how come Jumbo Carnation ain't dead no more? And oh yeah, by the way, was his death, which occurred back in New X-Men number 134, an overdose, a murder, a hate crime? What, what was it? Tell me, help me out here. And Cyclops evades this question poorly. <laughs> he's like, let's just celebrate the fact that he's alive. You know, we, we don't, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Ben informs Scott that, uh, well, he himself was on the scene to write about the Carnation death and knows for a fact that the big guy was, in fact, stone cold dead. Cyclops, well, he ain't a trained PR guy, and so he basically just pieces out and steps through a portal to the inside of the tree. He's like, nice to see you, Ben, gotta go. So maybe... He should try and look up what's-her-face from the X-Men's time in San Francisco to handle these kind of questions. Who knows? It wouldn't surprise me either way. Inside, he meets up with Jean, and holy smokes, they kiss. Are, are we actually reading an X-Men comic again? It sure feels like it. I, I don't know. Well, I feel like very out of sorts here, actually reading an X-Men comic that feels like an X-Men comic. Anyway, Jean asks if Yurik is going to be a problem. Scott hopes not, since he's such a good writer and thus could sway popular opinion. And um, in a later info page, uh, Mr. Yurik will prove that, uh, well, at least in my opinion, he's not all that great of a writer. Um, now, Scott asks if uh, coming back to New York was a, the right decision here, and Gene tells him not to worry about it. Scott says he'll leave all the legalese and nonsense to X-Corp, which only serves to remind me that X-Corp is still a thing. It's not like the X-Men didn't plop the mansion in the middle of Central Park like a couple years ago, right? So this should be old hat for them by now. Though, in fairness, Scott was away being dead at the time. Well, adult Scott. Time-displaced teen Scott was still there, and I suppose they have the same memories, but I couldn't imagine that time-displaced teen Scott was all that vital in dealing with the city zoning board. All right, all right let's just move on. Move on. Uh, Scott and Jean happen across Sink, who is uh, putting the finishing touches on the treehouse while synced with Forge and they're depicted as having something of a mutual admiration society between them, and it's pretty cool here. Like, uh, Sink is just honored to be uh, synced up with... I'm saying sync a lot, aren't I? Uh, to be uh, in tune with Forge, and Forge is like, hey, you know what, kid? You're just as good as I am. So it was, it's pretty cool to see them, see them, you know, giving each other credit. And as a uh, big fan of the old Generation X stuff, it's nice to see Sink getting, uh, getting some lip service here. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. Then... Fresh from the Boneyard, our ex-election winner, Polaris, arrives. And she wonders if they have any sidekicks or scrubs to help her with her bags. And Scott suggests, hey, you know what, maybe next year we'll have some. And you know what, uh, we just so happen to know a group of New York-based mutant groupies who are about to be out of their own book, right? Uh, maybe I shouldn't put such an idea out into the ether. Anyway, Scott gives Lorna a tour of the facilities, including a look at the brand-new Not Blackbird. Now, Scott suggests that they're going to call their new jet either the Proudstar or the Thunderbird in honor of John Proudstar's reckless sacrifice way back in the long ago. But then, Jean starts to pick up on a disturbance, and so she calls out to Rogue to do a flyover to find out what might be going on. Info page time, it's all about the treehouse and how it came to be. 
Forge, Cypher, and Krakoa put their heads together and decided on producing a tiny bonsai tree. Tempo then advanced the tree in age and size, growing it from 18 inches to 18 stories. It's considered the greenest structure in the world, to the point where endangered birds have taken up residence in its limbs. Now, Seneca Gardens is a free open park that encourages visitation. Though, I mean, if I'm living in the Marvel Universe, I'm probably going to avoid that area of town, because the X-Men headquarters usually attract all sorts of carnage and aren't usually long for the world. Anyway, Emma Frost is writing this bit, and she makes sure to mention that the X-Men are set to protect the entire world, their entire home world, and not just Krakoa, which is a bit of a change in their mission statement of late, and most definitely a welcome one. Back to comics. Rogue does her flyover, and what appears to be a comet blasts in from overhead, crashing into the bay. It unfolds, revealing itself to be... an Evangelion! Well... Well, not really, but it sort of looks like one, kind of like the one we saw back in, uh, I think it was Powers of X. Uh, It's a giant robot, is what I'm trying to say. And by giant, I mean giant, giant, like real, real big. Now, Rogue is spotted and attacked, and sent through several skyscrapers as though she were Superman getting punched by Doomsday. Then, the X-Men assemble. Now, this is the first that we're seeing of Sunfire in the book, who is wearing a new costume, which kind of looks like a mix between his Age of Apocalypse gear and also the Heroes Reborn Iron Man a bit. It's not his best look, and that's kind of saying something. It's drawn very, very well. It's Pepe Larazin. What are you going to do? But it's uh, not a really good look. Anyway, Lorna figures this is going to be easy peasy, considering her power set and the fact that this thing appears to be a giant metal robot. Well, not so fast, Lorna Sabi. It ain't going to go down that easy. Turns out that this baddie is a non-ferrous, which, uh, that's not good. Anyway, she's sent flying, but is caught by Rogue before she can, you know, hit something and go splat. The team realizes that, uh, they're not gonna be able to take this one down in, like, a just charge in and hit it a bunch sort of way. They're gonna have to get creative. And they're gonna have to use their powers in tandem. Which, you know, I mean, we talk a lot about individuality versus community in these Krakoan-era books. And I suppose parallels to the power of the community could be made here. But if that's where our minds are supposed to go here, it's being done in a very clever and subtle sort of way. We're not really being pounded over the head by it. It's just like we're in a pinch and we need to work together. And since this is a brand new team, seeing them work together in the way that they're about to is pretty cool. So that leaves us the question, how are they going to get out of this one? Well, Polaris seals the team up in a metal ball crafted out of various metallic debris so they can put a plan together. Meanwhile, Jean is trying to keep the civilians chill on the outside so that, like, a riot doesn't erupt here. Now, Sink has an idea, which Jean then telepathically shares with the crew. So it's really cool that Sink, I mean, he's been around for decades at this point, but he's still, like, the new kid on the block here. He's the one who is coming up with this sort of outside-the-box idea, which is just crazy enough to work, or at least they think it's going to be, and uh, we'll see if it is. So, now this idea is the creation of an X-Mech, and that's exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) We're going full-blown kaiju here. The X-Mech, it's worth noting, is pretty damned adorable, and it uses each of the X-Men's powers. Like, it's got the agility of Rogue, it's got a slot for an optic blast, it can emit emit flame from its chest like Sunfire. It's really a cool gimmick here. Unfortunately, when it gets a bit too close to the bad bot, the entire team is shocked silly. And so, it's up to Wolverine to get up close and personal with the thing. Now, she finds an organic-looking opening in the baddie and leaps into it to slice and dice, which she does, ultimately rendering the thing inert. Now, while she's slashing away, Jean, still inside the mech, receives a few mental messages here. One is from Captain America, informing the X-Men that the Avengers could be there in seconds to help out. Then we get one from Ben Grimm, who... He introduces himself as being both ever-loving and blue-eyed, which... I mean, we know he calls himself that, but if you read this dialogue blue and out loud, it just does not sound organic. It sounds cringy. It sounds cringy is what I'm trying to say. Anyway... Ben says that the Fantastic Four can also be there in two shakes to help out. Jean assures them that the crisis should be averted before they arrive, and in fact, it was. 
So the Avengers and Fantastic Four, they do arrive on the scene just to give the X-Men the big thumbs up and welcome them back to the city. Which, hey, gotta tell you, that's a most pleasant change of pace now, isn't it? Uh, so pleasant and surprising that Sink even mentions how pleasant and surprising it is. So could the dark decade of the X-Men finally be over? Are the X-Men once again allowed to play in the Marvel Universe and not get just be there to get beaten up? Is Marvel's movie temper tantrum over? I guess we'll see. From here, our scene shifts over to the Atlantic Krakoan Archipelago, where the X-Men have decided to dock their X-Mech. It's going to serve as a lighthouse and also be there just in case they ever need it again. Back at the treehouse, the team analyzes a piece of the baddie bot so they can try to figure out its origin and its purpose. Well, it turns out it had two purposes. One, to psionically destroy mammalian brains, and two, to replicate itself on Earth. But... Who could have sent it? Well, let's shift into... You guessed it, deep space. We're somewhere called Game World, which looks like a place that Lobo would probably hang out. It's a space casino, which has uh, started up a game that reminds me a bit of my old favorites, the Upstarts. Only rather than targeting mutants for points, these goofs are trying to take out any and all Earthlings. They're being led by something called Cordyceps Jones, who appears to be a disgusting fungus of sorts that has taken up residence in the skeletal remains of an astronaut. Now, you guys know me from uh, Way of X. I, me, and, me and mushrooms and funguses are... I, ugh, that's, it, they gross me out. They, the, the fact that people eat mushrooms, I, I can't even... Is that what the kids say? I can't even. That's what I'll say here. Now, a cordyceps is an actual fungus that lives on caterpillars in the high mountain regions of China. It's a parasite. Uh, Cordyceps Jones isn't exactly a brand new character. His first and only other appearance was in Rocket No. 4, August 2017 cover date, and he was created by Al Ewing and Adam Gorham. In that issue, Rocket Raccoon was involved with a TechNet bounty and would team up with Deadpool to steal from Cordyceps. Now, as Jones drones on about taking out the Earthlings, we could see that among the group of gamblers sits the High Evolutionary. Now, of course, we have read Solicits, and we know that the High Evolutionary will play into X-Men number 3. Anyway, the Galactic Gamblers are told to wipe out the Earthlings, but don't dare mess up the Earth itself. From here, it's an info page, Ben Urich's article. Now, he refers to Emma Frost's Hellfire Gala as being a smashing success, which I suppose we could look at in a couple of different ways. Uh, Was it a means to an end? Yeah. Did it progress the story? Uh Uh-huh. Was it fun to read? Well, mm. uh, now Yurik makes sure to single out, quote, conservative talking heads for being suspicious of the mutants terraforming Mars. Really, you know, getting into them being conspiracy theorists here. I tell you what, doesn't seem like that ought to be a partisan issue, but I guess whatever makes Marvel appear holier than thou, I guess. Uh, I mean, I hate to pull the let's play this out in the real world card, but let's play this out in the real world, shall we? A group of ridiculously powerful people, picture it, which include many former supervillains who have attempted to take over and or destroy the Earth countless times before, have suddenly terraformed and taken over an entire planet, the next planet over. Wouldn't that make you a little bit nervous? These are the same people who are kind of holding you hostage with miracle medicines right now. Magneto's there. (laughs) You know, Apocalypse was there. Mr. Sinister's there. Mutant terrorists are there, in charge. Wouldn't you be a little bit nervous? Nah, just those conservative wing nuts. We gotta make sure we, we point that out. Now, Yurik, he says that less countries recognize Krakoan now than did before the gala, which we did see play out with Terra Verde and the UK pulling out of their Krakoan treaties during the uh, party itself. Ben basically lays out that the X-Men's presence in New York City and the treehouse setup isn't a threat. He calls back to when Marvel threw their tissy fit and tried to replace the mutants with the Inhumans and had Black Bolt and the gang hovering over NYC and Attilan, and how that was a bit more threatening, and also trash. Another callback was to the Sentry's Watchtower, but he figures that everyone's probably already forgotten about that, because it's the Sentry, you get it? We all forgot about him. Anyway, back to comics. We are headed to a particularly evil part of New Jersey, which doesn't exactly narrow it down. We're at the Oblivion Institute, which certainly sounds like a place that'd be on the up and up, right? 
And, uh, you know, to be honest, this is where the issue kind of loses me a little bit. Um, looks like there's a guy named Dr. Stasis who's working with, I don't know, red balls instead of gold balls. Um, now, these red balls are to birth hybridized human-animal critters, I think. Uh, this is another post-humanity deal. And we see one being born, and it kind of looks like uh, the Spider Slayer. It's humanoid with big legs growing out of its back. And whatever it is, I mean, it's, it's quite frightened, and with good reason, because it's killed shortly after being birthed. I don't know if it was a, an aberration or a test to make sure that they're birthing the strongest. I, we'll find out, I'm sure. Now we wrap up with Dr. Stasis looking at a conspiracy-style pinboard, complete with, like, the yarn connecting the pins. And he's got news clippings of Jumbo Carnation's death, as well as a copy of Jumbo's death certificate. And he wraps up with the question of... How are the mutants resurrecting their dead? That's not the uh, end of the issue, though. We do get an info page, which is another ad for Blurred Murdoch, the uh, Bobby DaCosta's super expensive space lawyer. Um, I don't. Did this story come up a page short, or is this something other than a funny haha? Maybe we'll find out. Who knows? But that, my friends, is the first issue of Volume Six of X Men. Next time out, we're. Uh, well, we're headed back to Otherworld, of course. It's Excalibur Day, but we'll worry about that then. For now, let's talk about X-Men. Now, I feel like this is one of those episodes where I kind of gave most of my thoughts during the synopsis portion here, but I'll try to uh, at least sum up some thoughts here. Um, I feel like this is a really good marriage of the, uh, the Hickman-era stuff with uh, traditional... X-Men storytelling here. Uh, we've talked about books like X-Factor and Hellions that have like that Claremontian style, right? They're very, very traditional in that regard. And now finally, X-Men feels like an X-Men book. Um, it was very, very comfortable. It felt like, a, you know, it was like the old shoe, right? It's, we're just putting on, we're slipping on the old shoe and it feels right, but it's modernized. So it's still in the context of everything post-Hoxpox, but it actually feels like an X-Men book. The New York homecoming, the being welcomed back by the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, it, it just felt right. It just felt right. Just not being cluttered on Krakoa and dealing with quiet council shenanigans over and over again. It actually feels like a comic book, and uh, that's a very good thing. Uh, the, the flagship book has seldom felt like, uh, felt like a comic book, and, and here we are, right out the gate, feeling very traditional, very comfortable. And also really setting the stage for what's to come here. This felt like a uh, like a springboard. This felt like there's actually story, this progression about to happen here. And uh, with the news of Hickman's departure after Inferno, I mean, the sky's the limit at this point, right? I feel like, and this could be me projecting, it probably is, I feel like a lot of the writers in the uh, Brain Trust here were kind of uh, hamstrung as to what stories they could tell because... Uh, a lot of things Hickman already had his uh, his thumb on. He had, you know, the, he has his story he wants to tell, and certain bits and pieces need to remain untouched in order to facilitate that story. And with his swan song Inferno, you know, right there on the horizon, it's uh, things could go any which way, and it's uh, it's actually kind of exciting. Now back to the issue. Uh, while I I really really liked it. It doesn't mean it was perfect. Uh, you know me, I'm, I'm not going to jump to the 10 out of 10. Uh, there were some things that I would have uh, liked to have seen done differently. I think I would have liked to have seen a little bit more screen time for Rogue, a little bit more for Sunfire. I mean, we have a fairly small cast. Even, even X-23, uh, Wolverine, doesn't get a whole lot of screen time here. I mean, of course, we got to remember that uh, in the realities of current year storytelling, we are writing for a trade paperback. So I'm sure they're going to get ample screen time over the course of the next five or six issues, but when you're opening a series, I would have liked to have seen everybody get their opportunity to kind of show their stuff outside of just being in the group shot, you know, saying something. Let's see, something else I think did work was uh, was showing us, introducing us to multiple threats here on multiple different levels here, which each kind of address different bits of uh, what's wrong with Krakoa or what could be perceived as being wrong with Krakoa here. We open with a Fei Long, who is annoyed that his entire life's work of living on Mars has been just usurped on almost... I mean, it wasn't something that was built to. 
You know, we didn't get news reports of like, oh, the uh, Krakoans are trying to colonize Mars. It's just all of a sudden, bada-bing, bada-boom, it's done. I can definitely sympathize with a scientist who has toiled away for years on this concept, seeing it done almost as a, like a flight of fancy, or almost as like the Krakoans just doing it because they can do it, you know, showing the world that they could do it. I could see him being kind of annoyed. <laughs> I could see him kind of wanting a little bit of a... I don't know if revenge is the right word for it, but uh, wants them to have a little bit of a comeuppance. Uh, also, we got the gamblers on the game world here with Cordyceps Jones here. I like it because it's both serious and funny. You know, it seems like it could be a silly story, but also at the same time, it seems like it could be like a deadly serious one. Uh, and again, it gives me uh, Upstarts vibes, which is always a good thing. Finally, and this is very subtle, and I mean, it's been building for a while now. I think a lot of us, when we saw that Jumbo Carnation was getting so much screen time, it was just like, why? <laughs> why are we seeing this guy so damn much? And then we get to the Hellfire Gala, and it was kind of a... I don't know if red herring is the right term, but like the Hellfire Gala is all about fashion and stuff. So we saw all the Carnation abominations. Like, oh, okay, well, that's why Jumbo Carnation has been so prominent in these books. And then we get this curveball here, and it's like, no... No, that's not why Jumbo Carnation was so prominent. He was he was being shown so often because, well, he's the one that people are going to latch onto. The real world, the human world, are going to latch onto this guy as a sort of anomaly here. Like, how is this guy still alive? We saw him die. We have his death certificate. And he's not a superhero, which, I mean, the Marvel Universe, God bless them, they know that when Captain America dies, it's only a matter of time before he's back. When Iron Man dies, he'll be back soon. When uh, Wolverine or Cyclops die, they'll, they'll be back, you know? But a Jumbo Carnation is different. He's not a superhero here. He's a kind of a public figure. He has a storefront. He has a designer fashion label. And he has a death certificate. <laughs> he was dead. And here he is alive. And we have Ben Yurick asking questions about that. And we also have this Dr. Stasis trying to figure out exactly what the mutants did to bring back their dead. And to do that via Jumbo Carnation is so clever. Because I feel like to readers of X-Men comics, he's very low profile. But to the civilians and the citizens of the Marvel Universe, he is a little bit higher profile. He's a known commodity. And uh, a guy who's been dead for a while who suddenly isn't anymore is gonna, gonna arouse some questions. So I really, really like that. While sort of on the subject of Ben Urich here, um, I did enjoy him kind of doing that whole Columbo gimmick where it's like, hey, one more question. Oh, no, by the way, I got this question. What I didn't like, and I mentioned this during the synopsis, is the attempt to turn the terraformation of Mars into a partisan issue. Why? Like, really, why? Aren't Americans, like, very splintered right now as it is? Like, we're very vitriolic toward people who have different opinions than us. It's kind of just... The world we live in now with social media and politics kind of hand-in-hand hand at the moment, why drag something like the terraformation of Mars into the realm of partisan politics? It's a huge deal that doesn't just affect the United States. It doesn't just affect one party. And, you know, going back to my observations during Planet-Sized X-Men, you know, I said the terraformation of Mars in the fantastical Marvel Universe shouldn't be a big deal. Period, right? We've got gods walking the planet. <laughs> I mean, that's the one I always go to. We've got Thor on Earth, right? So terraforming a planet really shouldn't be a big deal. And here it feels like they're trying to eat their cake and have it too here. They're trying to instill in us that it is, in fact, a huge deal, but also kind of not, because only the weirdos <laughs> and the people on the far side of the political spectrum are concerned that very dangerous people and potentially dangerous people have just taken over the next planet over. And as I've said time and again, I have very little interest in politics, left, right, or center. But this kind of, like, drive-by comment, it's annoying. But I think that is all I have to say about this issue here. Uh, the art, of course, was phenomenal. Uh, Pepe Larraz, Mardi Gracia, the Hoxpox crew, putting them together here makes this feel like an event. And uh, I tell you, the first issue of a volume of X-Men, which we get far too often these days should feel like an event. And, uh, yeah, this one did. I highly recommend it, and I feel like the X-Men are in good hands. 
Now, speaking of uh, whose hands the X-Men were in, or are in for the next little while, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the news. Let's talk about Jonathan Hickman leaving the X-Men books here and what that might mean for our family of titles. Now, if you ask me, it's a, uh, it's a good thing and a bad thing, right? I mean, it's a bad thing because, I mean, this has all been written and created in, in his vision, over the past uh, two years at this point, and it's been a very slow burn. No pun intended with Inferno coming up, of course. And I think it would do the entire run of this service if we're just going to like try to cram everything into the four-issue Inferno story. Of course, this could be could have been the whole plan from the start, right? That this very well could have been it. In so much of the promo art for Inferno, it looks like it's being presented as like the perfect bookend. For Hoxpox, right? We've all seen that picture. I think it was Mark Brooks who drew it here. It's it's a phenomenal piece of work here where he drew like a group shot for Hoxpox where you had like Xavier and Mora on the uh, bench and surrounded by different characters of different eras, just like a real group shot of X-Men lore in one beautiful image. And here with Inferno, we get that same picture but different. Evoking both change and the original piece of art It's really, really well done And I'm sure uh, most people listening to this have seen that And if you haven't, it's very, very easy to find these uh, two uh, beautiful works So for all I know, and I know nothing For all I know, Inferno might have always been his uh, exit point So yes, it could be a good thing could be a bad thing We can finally get some of the answers that we've wanted for two years Or it could be a rushed mess Where... We're just going down a checklist of things that need to be resolved before he, uh, you know, he cedes control of the uh, line. What's it going to be in reality? Again, I don't know. I don't know anything. And uh, unlike a lot of folks, I am completely honest with the fact that I don't know anything. <laughs> and I'm not going to waste your time pretending to know things and then ultimately leave you without any information anyway. Now let's talk a little bit about Substack. This is something I don't know a whole heck of a lot about. Uh, as a matter of fact, I only heard about it the morning that I heard that Hickman was leaving here from someone who doesn't even follow the X-Men books. He's like, hey, what do you think about this Substack thing? And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Turns out it's going to be an option for uh, creators to publish their work here. And it's, I, you know, I don't know much about it. I haven't done deep research on it. But it looks like it's going to be an outlet for comics creators to put out work on like a subscription basis, kind of like a one-to-one subscription where you will subscribe to, well, let's just say Jonathan Hickman, and you'll get access to his work as it comes out. I think we might be able to quantify it as like a comicsology meets Kickstarter, perhaps, like where you are basically a patron to this person to get their work. Now, that might be the quick and dirty of it. That might be completely wrong. (laughs) But from the impression that I'm getting, that's kind of what it is. And the timing of this announcement that Hickman is leaving the X-Men comes right around the time of the announcement that he's doing this Substack thing. Now, he claims that one announcement has nothing to do with the other, but the fact that he actually had to come out and say that kind of tells me otherwise. But uh, I am known for being a little cynical at times like this. Whether or not that's the case really doesn't matter. Right, uh, and I mean, we'll probably be talking about Substack more as we go because it seems like uh, whoever's behind Substack has uh, come into a lot of barrels full of cash <laughs> that they want to dump on top-tier uh, comics creators so they can create uh, Netflix and Hulu bait in the form of uh, comic books for the next little while. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I'm leaning on the side of it being a good thing. It's going to be good for creators to uh, get in while the getting's good. I, I think... That this concept maybe came a little bit late Because I feel like folks are getting a little bit burnt out On comics properties being turned into things And I could be wrong I could be completely wrong I usually am But I feel like the excitement for comics-related properties Becoming live-action or animated or, or whatever the case is I feel like the golden age of that kind of thing Might be behind us at this point Again, I could be completely wrong And I might just be projecting as to what the goals of these creators are in going to Substack. Uh, For all I know, they do want to just keep doing comics. I kind of doubt it, (laughs) because, I mean, the money is uh, where the money is. And I wouldn't hold it against them for trying to get that money while it's there, of course. I just hope people aren't putting all their eggs in this basket just yet. Um, Now, why else is this a good thing? Well, it's going to get new voices into uh, the big two. 
Now, this is something we talk about a lot when we do the Marvel's Voices uh, one-shots, right? Where we'll have a new or completely unknown creator who's given a page or two in an anthology where they really can't show their stuff, right? But it's Marvel's way of saying, hey, look, we're being inclusive while shuffling the same five or six creators around the same five or six top-tier Marvel books. I mean, I, I don't know who Donny Cates is, but how many times can Marvel be like, hey, Donny Cates is coming to this book? And you know how I feel about Al Ewing, but how many times can you be like, here's Al Ewing on a brand new book again? I feel like the top tier at Marvel has been a little bit stagnant. Uh, I don't know that it's been this stagnant since they did the architect push around Avengers vs. X-Men time, where it was basically Bendis and his buddies running the entire universe, trading off books when they got bored of them and giving Bendis whichever book was going to get a movie, basically. So if this winds up opening up some spots for some new blood, new voices, that's great. That's great. If we can actually get people who want to stay in the comics business for a little while, even better. People who are passionate about the X-Men, booyah, I love it. Now, of course, that's not to say that Hickman was not passionate about the X-Men, but when everything we heard about him taking over the X-Men had to do with him signing a contract to do so, I don't know. Again, I could be projecting. I could be completely talking out my ass here, but when you have to announce that you signed a contract to do something... It might not have been the most intrinsically pleasing thing for you to do in the first place. Now, does this mean we're going to get an entirely new roster of uh, writers and creators on these books? Who knows? Who knows? Um, I think Leo Williams is doing a Substack thing. And again, I don't know if Substack is a uh, is an exclusive deal. You know, I don't know if this is like you know current year cross gen where. Uh, what was it Mark Alessi or whatever his name was Came and like just poached a bunch of uh, name creators And said you can't do anything but write for me now And then they turned out stuff that really didn't change the world all that much Or will a creator be able to split their time between, uh, between projects I, I don't know I really don't know I don't know if anybody knows at this point But what I do know is that Leo Williams does have something cooking at uh, Substack And uh, was recently very vocal about her displeasure with X Factor being cancelled I kinda talked a bit about how the sausage was made, which I gotta figure Marvel might not be all that happy about. Because uh, Marvel wanted this to look like an organic ending to a volume, where Ms. Williams uh, made it very clear that, no, no, this was dropped on us at the very last minute, and a lot of things had to be changed in order to make it uh, fit what Marvel wanted it to be, so... Can't imagine they'd be too pleased with that coming out. I don't know if this will lead to anything, or if this will just turn the trial of Magneto into uh, Leia Williams's swan song in the uh, X family of books for now. So we got a lot of plates spinning. We got a lot of plates spinning in the air right now. A lot of stuff that we will be discussing more and more as information trickles in. Uh, again, I'm not a news source. I will never pretend to be a news source. I'm just a guy. Giving you my reaction and uh, hoping to hear yours as well. But we'll put a pin in that for now. We'll come back to it later and uh, let's get into the mailbag. Let's start with Damien who's talking about Runaways number 35. And Damien says, I feel like I should copy and paste my response to the last Runaways episode. I still don't really have any familiarity with the characters or their setup, but I have enjoyed what I've seen. It feels very 80s Marvel in that it's got enough accessibility for a new reader, but also enough stuff that I don't fully understand to maybe get me back for more. It probably won't pull me in as my to-be-read pile of comics is taller than me, and that's not including all the digital stuff I've bought but not yet read. I'm desperately trying not to add anything new to my list. Overall, I did enjoy it, and I may come back to it at some point. I feel very much the same way. Um, I actually went out and picked up the next issue of Runaways, uh, number 36, I suppose that would be, because well, Marvel said it would be the most shocking book of uh, 2021, and uh, it wasn't. <laughs> um, I suppose maybe if you did follow Runaways, it would have been a little bit more shocking, but even then, I couldn't imagine anybody like like dropping their jaw open at the uh, reveal uh, at the end of that issue, but... I did come back for it. I thought it was uh, an interesting story. I thought the characters were a lot of fun. It had been, boy, 15 years since I'd read Runaways at that point. So I figured I'd give it a shot. And while it's interesting and while it's good and while I enjoyed it, like you said, I mean, got so much stuff to read, I don't know that I can add anything to, uh, to the pile here. I might wait for it to hit Marvel Unlimited. I might forget about it between then and now. Who knows? I do know that... Uh, Runaways will be hitting its uh, 
legacy number 100 pretty soon so maybe that'll be another time to pop back in and uh and check in with the kids who knows who knows but thank you so much for uh for checking out a series that you don't usually follow and uh for listening and writing in damien thank you so much next up evan talking about new mutants number 17 now evan says i get the impression you may not be excited about otherworld (laughs) <laughs> but at least this story used it effectively with Josh, a.k.a. the Blue Jersey Devil, and how he questions the the status quo <laughs> between Xavier and nice guy mutant supremacist Moira X and Mystique's upcoming Inferno. It might be folks like Josh and Scout who provide hope for a reasonable, sustainable, and non-villainous Krakoan future. And you know, I agree. The story itself wasn't bad. I think it's just the fact that, I mean, we can't go two weeks without going to Otherworld. I feel like Otherworld, as a concept, it just doesn't... I don't know, it can't shoulder its own series the way they're trying to make it. They're trying to force it into being a place that we're always at. And I think that it only works when we're not there every single month. And I'm pretty sure when this issue of New Mutants came out, it was like... We had like four episodes out of six where we were in Otherworld. (laughs) I think we had like Excalibur twice, Wolverine, and this. It was just... Pure otherworldly fatigue, which isn't fair of me to hold against a book, but you would almost hope that editorial would see all the times we're going to Otherworld and Madripoor and be like, maybe we should go somewhere else this month. Or maybe you really want to tell this story, maybe we do it after the next event. You know, let's let's push it a little bit because, boy, <laughs> too much. Uh, Evan continues, I agree, Cosmar and company will not react well if Moonstar acts as Karma's crucibully, but there is a difference. This would, in theory, be giving Karma's brother a new lease on life rather than an extreme mutant makeover, but it will make for good storytelling all the same. And yeah, I definitely feel like this worked the way it was supposed to. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know if we were supposed to see the things that I saw in it, where when I see the way that this went, uh, and by now you've likely already read the issue where they do their crucibling, But um, I feel like this, and I've said this before, and people are probably tired of hearing me say it, but this really draws a line between the different classes of Krakoans here, where the beautiful people are given different uh, opportunities than the less, you know, traditionally attractive characters here. The top tier of the X-Men books have always been filled with the human-passing characters, right? So stands to reason that they would be the most... Uh, friendly with the Quiet Council and might get the allowances that some of the ones that are you know, the irregulars just don't get. And I hope that that's what they're playing up here. I hope that this gets fleshed out a bit. I hope I'm just not reading into things, which, I mean, that's always a possibility. But uh, thank you so much for writing in on that one, Evan. Uh, we're going to wrap up with Meal doing the Cable State of the Union. Now, Meal says, Cable was pretty good. Not amazing, but pretty good. My main annoyance comes with the way everyone exaggerated how much Summer's family interactions. Like, sure, there were more interactions than usual, but it wasn't the best dynamic in the book. That was being young Nathan and Esme. This book made me love Esme Cuckoo, like, can I have an old lady Esme mini? Or just any Esme story, because she's great. I really enjoy how in this modern era, the Cuckoos are starting to get more different personalities. It's very enjoyable to watch. We see Esme through Cable and Phoebe through X-Force, and it's very enjoyable. And that's a great point. That's a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up, because this really talks about how important it is to focus on character here. I think when Grant Morrison introduced the Cuckoos, there really wasn't much thought into making them anything more than, you know, the, the group of five, right? The, uh, the five and one. Uh, they were just there to look creepy <laughs> and to make us feel uncomfortable, like the real Stepford sort of a look, right? Then, you know, we can go into, like, the Bendis era, where in order to make them different, he gave them different hair colors. And it's like, well, that doesn't change much. That just makes us able to point them out if we know which one has which hair color. And I think that was truly an attempt to give them characters, which missed the mark. Um, Here, we're back to them all looking the same, but... They have different characterizations. As you mentioned here, uh, we've got Esme in uh, Cable, and we got Phoebe over with Quentin Choir. I suppose there might be critics of, you know, uh, informing characterization by who their boyfriends are, but what it does is it gives them an opportunity to be away from the, uh, you know, the five-in-one. It gives them a chance to 
actually be their own characters here And uh, it's definitely been successful on, on both ends, I believe uh, Neil continues I didn't really care about the Knights of Galador, so I have absolutely no opinions on that I also skipped the X of Swords issues because I refuse <laughs> Yeah, the X of Swords issues for Cable were um, speed bumps is that, a, is that a good term for it? It... Uh, in hindsight, felt like more of a backdoor pilot for the Sword series, and it just so happened to fill the pages of Cable. And Cable did have some good moments during Exitens, during his battle with uh, Bay the uh, Blood Moon. That was a great scene, which really showed his character, and the way he took that loss was um, very profound, and it, it's leading to what we're getting in the uh, wrap-up of the volume So there is some seminal stuff in there I just don't think it happens in Cable's own book So what are you going to do? Now uh, Emil continues Whether I prefer Old Man Cable versus Young Man Cable Well, I've now read more Young Cable than Old Cable And I find him more enjoyable to read I mean, Hope's reunion with the Old Man was fun But I don't like Hope So there's only so much heavy lifting that scene can do That's interesting I'm you know such a curmudgeonly old comics fan here That I... Sometimes take for granted that uh, folks come into the fandom all the time, right? Or, or relatively speaking. And so this young Cable might be someone's actual Cable. I mean, not that Cable is, you know, the be-all and end-all of characters here. This isn't like uh, pre-Flashpoint Superman and New 52 Superman or anything like that. This is a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit lesser than that. But, I mean, still stands to reason that this Cable, young Cable, could be someone's Cable. And how many more times am I going to say the word Cable? Probably a lot. Now, for me, I came into comics right around the time Cable was dropped on us. Uh, and he was very mm, current-year Clint Eastwood. He was very old. He was very just uh, gruff. And I did not care for him at all. I was not a fan of Cable until, uh, until they started to humanize him. And I feel like in humanizing him, they almost made him younger. They youngified him a little bit. They softened him. I think the first Cable story that I really liked was during Cyclops' bachelor party, where he and Cable went back to uh, the mansion and fought the Executioner. Because it was just so cool to see to see Cable as a, as a human. You know, he was a person, not just a, a gun carrier. It really went to great lengths to make him into a more three-dimensional character here. He dealt with all the stuff with being time-displaced, sent to the future. He forgave Scott. Or, I mean... I not so much forgave him, but told him there was nothing to forgive, basically. It was a fun story that started to win me over on the character of Cable. Then we jump ahead a couple of years to when Joe Casey took over the uh, Cable ongoing, and it was... It, it grounded the character. It made him a little bit more street-level, a little bit more... Um, again, less of just a gun carrier. He was there, he was tactical, he was using different parts of his, uh, his skill set. And he was also getting involved with romance and uh, meeting different characters that we didn't see Cable really hanging out with. It was fun. Having Cable as a caregiver for Hope much later on, I, I enjoyed that as well. I feel like uh, Bishop's character might not have ever uh, recovered from that run, but I thought that was a really fun run. It was something that... It's not often... Like, when we had this Cable uh, series... Launched. I remember thinking, like, why? Why do we need a Cable series? Of course, my opinion has changed on that uh, in the interim, but I feel like if we're going to give a character a book, it has to have a reason, a mission statement right out of the gate. So that Cable volume where he and Hope are, you know, jumping from future to future to avoid Bishop, that felt like a, a reason, it gave it a reason to exist. And it also gave us the opportunity to see Cable, this gun carrier as a caretaker and I thought that really fleshed out the character as well and probably had a lot to do with softening him to the point where maybe he became a little bit derelict in his duties or a little bit less rigid in his duties maybe and that led to Kid Cable coming and uh, relieving him of his duties in, in the extermination series. Now as for which Cable I want going forward I don't know <laughs> I like them both at this point um uh, being, you know, the curmudgeonly fan I am, I definitely have a softer spot for the old man. But uh, I definitely see value in Kid Cable as well. And if he does wind up going away, whichever one goes away, I, I will miss them. I will miss them for sure. 
Meal wraps up with, overall, I would say it was something like a 7 out of 10. And so until Quicksilver spends time with Gambit's cat again, <laughs> be my next lapsed. And I think a uh, 7 out of 10 is fair. 7 out of 10 is fair. Um, it's probably more, if I were to rate it, I'd probably go 8.5 out of 10. And that, But that mo- might mostly be because I expected so little out of it and wound up getting a lot of enjoyment out of a series that... Uh, I didn't have many hopes for, and I was actually actively dreading when uh, when I was actually approaching it. Uh, I think it was episode 64 or 65, way back in the long ago. I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> we've got Cable. Especially just a few episodes after introducing the Wolverine series, which also didn't really rock my socks. So I was uh, a little trepidatious, but relieved quite quickly. But thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts on cable. Uh, I'm looking forward to your uh, to all your State of the Union addresses for our uh, family of books here. I can't wait for more. So thank you so much again. Now that'll do it for us today. If uh, anybody would like to write in and hey, maybe give your own State of the Union addresses on some of our books, I would love for you to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisesoninfiniteearth.com. You can join us on Facebook, where we are talking a lot about the Jonathan Hickman departure, Substack, what this might mean for the future of the line, a lot of fun stuff. And I would love to see you there and joining in the conversation. That's 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates sound. But that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for spending your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.